Welcome to the Big Tech Little Tech Podcast. Here are your hosts, Sean Weston and Rick Huckstep. Happy New Year and welcome to episode 40 of the Big Tech Little Tech Podcast. I'm Sean Weston and between me and my co-host Rick Huckstep will try to unravel the mysteries and complexities of modern technology. Either that or make it far more complicated than it ought to be. Happy New Year, Rick. How was Christmas for you? And a happy new year to you, Sean, and to all of our listeners. Thank you. Uh, Christmas was great. Well, I love I love being in Spain. Uh, my one of my daughters and a boyfriend came out, and we had a house full. We had nine on Christmas Day, and then uh, Catherine, my daughter, and uh, we all went up to Cordoba, which is a lovely historic Spanish city. You sent me some beautiful photos. Beautiful, and uh, we had a, a nice few days there. And we had a good New Year's Eve in town. And uh, we're looking forward, because our Christmas in Spain doesn't end until this weekend, because on uh, Friday they have what is called Three Kings. So there's a big parade in town. Uh, The town hall always put on this parade where they throw sweets and presents to the kids in the street as they go through the town with marching bands. And there there will be three people dressed up as the three ki- three wise men. They call them the three kings here. But we would know them as the wise men who brought gifts to Jesus on his birthday or his date of birth. Or so is born. that just you and Sue? Has everyone else gone home now or have you, have you still got company? The kids have gone. It's just us and our friends. But it's always a, it's always a big night in town. But traditionally in Spain, kids would not get their presents on the 25th of December. They would get them on the 6th oh. of January. And, and there's still an element of that that goes on. And, and do you have an element of that at home? Have you kept a present aside? No, well, we for, don't, we're not really a no. present. We've kind of got beyond presents. Uh, Sue makes things uh, and she's made all of the gifts this year. So she does uh, one of the things she does is ceramics. So she's made we've all I've got a nice new mug and she's made uh, lots of gifts, but they're all homemade. So no, yeah, why do you, so, you go beyond presents? I don't. I didn't know that was a thing that you go beyond presents. Is that uh, being grown? Is that what I said? Something. Yeah, we're beyond presents. Well, what I mean by beyond presents is we don't do them. <laughs> it's not. I've not gone to some to some new futuristic place. We've kind is of that by mutual arrangement. Well, we have everything we want, don't we? In life, what's the need, what's the point of you know buying a present? Oh, you you've just reminded me. Actually, you just reminded me. I haven't watched The Grinch yet this year, so I'll have to. Put that on. <laughs> well, anyway. watch it after you watch Scrooge, and then you can think of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Tech of the Week. Uh, tell me about your Tech of the Week. The story that I liked this week was the the NASA story, if you saw that one. So um, they've got a space satellite that's at about 19 million miles up in space. And uh, last week they beamed a 15-second ultra-high-definition video clip of a cat playing with a bit of orange light. And they beamed it back to Earth, and it took 101 seconds and that was at a speed faster than most broadband speeds in the UK. When you think wow. that's that's 80 times the distance between here and the moon. And it took less than two minutes for an ultra high definition video to come back. Yeah, I thought Can you give cool. me some context, by the way? So 19 million miles, mm. where would that be? exactly in space right now you know okay for our patreon video watchers i'm pointing he is pointing i can affirm that. 
<laughs> I am pointing up to the sky, and it's it's up there. Oh, I can't. I don't know. I mean, how do I, how do I give a reference point? It's well, I mean, how many how many million miles away, for instance, you know, are the other planets? Oh, I don't know. That's all right. It was a tough question. I thought I thought you might. I mean, why do we have a satellite out there, for instance? Oh, I don't know. It's it's part of NASA's space thing that they're doing. Yeah. Well, I like it anyway. I mean, the speed at which it does it. You didn't tell me you were going to ask me questions. You didn't tell me you were going to ask me tough questions. But there is a theme to my... Because my hero of the week is also going to be space-related. So, you know, by the time... We'll come back to that. When you're rabbiting on, I'm going to do some Googling and I might get some answers for you. Rabbiting on? When do I rabbit on? Anyway... (laughs) My tech of the week is the Kronos Robotics Mobility Solution. Uh, as with many of my techs of the week, it, it's not new. It wasn't launched last week. It's been out for a fair number of years, but I saw it this week and I thought, oh, isn't that great? It's a mobility, uh, it's a wheelchair in, in essence, and it's called Kim E. So K-I-M hyphen E. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's essentially what they call um, an invisible wheelchair and i just love it it's a self-balancing personal mobility robot rather than a wheelchair what do you mean invisible invisible wheelchair you can't yeah, see it yes so if you could do you remember those segways uh-huh. yeah and the segways you you moved around on them based on your balance and how you sort of pivoted your hips and leaned a fraction of a weight left right north south east and west and this wheelchair or mobility solution robot uh, works on the same principles of that so if you can't walk but you sit in this thing it doesn't have a back it sits you up but it also uh, raises and lowers so you can actually be in an almost standing position the robot helps you almost stand and then you can get quite low and pick up objects and things like that well so, i never and, and cool. it's all based on it's all based on you moving according to balance so there's no rolling of of wheels and there's no um stick to to guide you it's all based on your your hip movements and your on your balance see it in action it's great loved it yeah i can imagine yeah i can imagine oh cool i know there's something you want to talk about in this episode and it's open ai do you want to do you want to kick off well what's the subject here right so Um, I mean, there's a million stories about OpenAI, but I think this is the most important one. So just the other week, the New York Times has filed a lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft. And this is is for billions of dollars in damages and, um, and, and also what they're asking for, what they're demanding is the destruction of the chatbot models that have been trained using New York Times copyrighted content. The New York Times has filed a lawsuit against OpenAI and its partner, Microsoft, to stop the use of its articles to train chatbots. It's the first major American media organization to take action against the artificial intelligence platforms. The New York Times said in a statement that it has invested heavily in its content and that if Microsoft and OpenAI want to use their work, they need permission. Okay, so as we've talked about before, to make things really simple, these large language AI machine systems are trained by feeding them with lots of, of, of written data, content from the web. And that can be books and web pages and YouTube videos and the like. Now, the thing is, not all words are the same in terms of the quality dimension. So an article by a New York Times journalist will carry far more weight 
than an article written by me, for example, or, you know, the, you know, the majority of stuff, which is on YouTube. So, and the AI models have these um, weights kind of aligned. So New York Times content has more value in the chatbot, uh, artificial intelligence machine than, than most other stuff. Subjective value, I might add. It's journal, subjective journalism. It's only based on reputation. It's not necessarily based on quality of um, content. True. The objectiveness to it, though. So I would, I think you're being pedantic and picky. Um, and I mean that in the sense that if you was to look at objectively the way the internet works in terms of search and the way that advertising will be tied towards the quality of articles, the New York Times, which I think represents something like 0.001% of content on the internet. So it's like bugger all of nothing, but it's hundreds of times more credible. And so, yes, you know, the, the objective value or, or, or quantification of the value of a New York Times piece is significantly more than just if I wrote an article or you wrote an article. And that's, that's the whole point. Anyway, the New York Times have um, been in discussions with OpenAI, as have a number of other media outlets. To, or OpenAI led the discussions to talk about licensing of the, <clears throat> the content so that they get essentially permission to have used this data. And it seems that the discussions with the New York Times and OpenAI have broken down and New York Times have gone the nuclear option route, which is to say, OK, well, we're going to sue you. And if we win, you've got to take out all of our content. And anybody who knows anything about these large language machines, you can't. You can't take the data out. It's like, does the New York Times know that? And so they're. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, 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 of course they do. This is like taking an egg out of a cake. It's like saying, I want well, my yeah, egg back. Which you've said before, yeah. And it was good. It was good the first time I said it, so I thought I'd repeat it as a little as a visualization for people to understand what that means. Have they got legs here? Yeah, they have. This is the big issue I think that's going to dominate the news cycle in 2024, which is that these AI machines, and it's all the same: Google Bard, Anthropics, Claude, um, Meta's Llama uh, Two, all of them have been trained. Uh, have been trained by essentially sweeping the web and the internet and just sucking everything in they've they did it on the basis of what's called fair usage there's a kind of a a principle which is that if something's in the public domain and um it's being used for you know reasonable purposes it's kind of okay fair usage and it's a gray area it's how it's how for instance the new york times might back themselves up when they want to use things off social media yeah and and it gets com- it's a complicated right these things are very technical these these laws but i think where new york times appears to be in a very strong position is that um one of the things they reported they have this thing called wirecutter which is a new service and when they went into chat gpt and they asked some questions they got almost verbatim the article from wirecutter you know like when they have these these um trials where someone says you nicked my song and then someone has to listen as to whether you know, the melody or the, or the chord structure or whatever, he's roughly the same. Well, it's a bit like that. They're going through and they're saying, well, we wrote this article 10 years ago and you're now saying ChatGPT has created it, but it looks exactly the same. That's probably a clue that maybe you just started with our data. Yeah, so so the next year might uh, show, if depending on the outcome, do you know any of the dates that, where these things might come to a head? The New York Times may want to pursue this as a precedent because there is a more fundamental issue for the media um, outlets. And that is that 
at the moment, if you want news, so if you wanted some historical research, you could use AI. But if you want to go in right now and say, tell me about the, the plane crash in, in Japan that happened this morning or overnight, you would probably go to a news site. Whereas increasingly the AI is going to be able to start providing that. And what the AI would do was go across three or four news websites and then just aggregate and create a summary. Now that's going to take business away from people like the New York Times and the BBC and so on. And if you remember 15 odd years ago, when Google first started out, newspaper outlets like the New York Times kind of rolled over and said, oh no, this would be great to let Google have free access to all of our content. And of course, what's happened now is that the value of the likes of Google has significantly grown, whereas the readership of the New York Times has diminished. And they, in hindsight, probably gave away the crown jewels without realising what they were doing. And there's an element of... They don't want to get burned uh, a second time round. I suspect OpenAI will probably offer money to do a licensing deal and say, well, look, we'll give you a large sum of money and you give us the rights to use this data. Yeah, speaking of copyright and trademarks and such, Apple has been in a little bit of hot water over the past uh, recent times, I think, with um, Massimo. Now, Massimo uh, are specialists. I think the medical device yeah, health company. Tech, yeah. And they, yeah, they created a blood oxygen level measurement technology. And there's a lot of nuances to this, um, but things came to a rather unusual uh, thing in America recently where Apple Watches weren't for sale. That's correct. In America. Isn't that unusual? And uh, it didn't last long. Was it a couple of days, two or three days? But there was a US import ban. But it was Christmas Eve, I think. It was like it was like the two or three days before Christmas, which is a massive shopping window for for Apple. Yeah, so you couldn't get the Series Nine and the Ultra Two watches. Yeah, and I think this is all, all based on a dispute, isn't it, between Apple and, and Massimo, this medical device company, over who actually came up with that blood oxygen level measurement technology. I think it's still an ongoing thing as well. Am I right in saying that the, the guy who pretty much started this dispute used to work for Apple? Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. I know that the... I think he might have, you know. I don't know. I didn't read that. But this dispute has been going on over a year. The, the, the versions I read were linked to Apple essentially poaching or employing Massimo people and putting them on the, the, the team to build this, um, this blood oxygen uh, sensor capability, which is what Massimo had developed. Been, Massimo had been pursuing Apple for a year, and in October, the court, as it was going through the process, found in Massimo's favour there was um, appeals, which I think were in the appeals cycle. But what I couldn't find was why it was that the International Trade Commission kind of triggered this, um, this ban. Because the point is that most Apple Watches are made in China, and particularly the, these models. And so the point was that by importing them or allowing the import of the Apple Watches from China to the, UK, uh, to the USA, in light of the October ruling by the court, then there was a risk that they were actually in breach of the court ruling by allowing this to go ahead because technically Apple had been told not to use them, although it's subject to appeal. And the, the Biden's administration did not veto the ITC ban, and that's why you had um, that's why you had this ban. But I think the courts have overruled it and said, well, look, whilst it's in appeal, you can carry on. 
but it certainly doesn't look good for Apple. It does look as though this could be a very costly experience for them if they lose. It could be. I mean, it's interesting that I've read something different about, I didn't read anything about people from Massimo being poached as such. I did actually read that the the guy um, who came up with this technology actually wrote to Tim Cook many years ago, basically saying, I'd like to work for you. And um, I have some experience in this medical blood uh, oxygen device, and I reckon I could put it in your devices. And they hired him. Oh, I hadn't seen that story. That's interesting. Yeah, they didn't keep him. So it's interesting to find out what's real, because I, I haven't seen your version of the poaching either. So let's see if we can get some AI at work for us. I was just reading an article this morning. The CEO of Massimo was just been interviewed by the New York Times. And I, I just... Yeah, what's his name? Did you, did you remember? I did. I, it was one of those things as I was just doing my final notes. I thought, oh, it's interesting. It caught my eye. He reckons he spent $100 million fighting Apple over this. $100 million. Okay. <laughs> but this is not his first rodeo, I have to say, because he has already won patent claims against two other firms over the last 15 years. And, and one significant, he's won like over a billion dollars in damages where other firms have been found to have nicked his, his software. Uh, yeah, he's got, some, he's got some form. Yeah, I like what just happened, by the way. For, for the people who don't know, who can't see us and they're just listening right now, I can tell you that when I was just watching Rick on the video, a lot, lots of balloons just went up around him. I've read about this, that um, there's an awful lot of... Uh, do you know about the gestures, by the way, for... for FaceTime. No, what are you talking about? Balloons. So you can have some gestures, and if you if you do something for the camera, it makes something happen on screen. So you can do a heart shape, for instance. Now I've turned my... Oh, no, it's working. So I've just done hearts for everybody. And uh, apparently this is coming up a lot on um, very important business calls and things like that. And, and everyone's saying, let's turn those off because they're largely inappropriate. But I, qu- I quite like what you just did. So you got the balloons going. I just got. The are you talking about? Uh, what is this? You're recording on your iPhone, are you? Your end. And you're you're using a Mac, right? I can see you now. So what did I do? All right. Now now watch me. Yeah. Do that. You ready? Do, do hearts. Look at that. Now I don't I don't remember the balloon one, but you did something and it set your balloons off. <laughs> For all those listening, this is going to be this is this is going to be ultra boring. So you need to you need to watch us on YouTube or vid or Patreon <laughs> to find out what was going on there. In June, Apple announced new privacy and security innovations, including updates to Safari private browsing, communication safety, and lockdown mode. Now, that's just one way Apple has been step-changing privacy. A lot of uh, upset people, perhaps along the same lines as the New York Times, uh, their revenue and their ad spend and, and things like that have dropped dramatically since Apple introduced a lot of privacy updates. How is this going for Apple itself? Well, funny enough, whilst I was looking at the... Apple Watch stuff, I kind of got just drawn into a closer look at Apple, which I hadn't actually looked at for a while. And, and it, it drew me into this whole area of, of advertising, privacy, and, and Apple's strategy, largely driven by the fact that they need to find new, new sources of revenue because their revenue is declining, even though it's, it's um, what, 300 and 
80 billion dollars a year or something the the rate at which it's growing it's a drop is drop in the ocean isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's not growing far it's not growing as fast as it was so it's what's called as revenue decline even though it's going up it's not going up as fast as it was the other thing that apple seems to be doing is building off the back of this privacy is moving more into the digital ad space and they've kind of been I guess it depends on how you look at it. They've branded themselves as being a consumer champion by championing privacy and giving you this thing called ATT, App Tracking Transparency. So anybody since 2021 has been able to answer that question. It says, do you want this app to to track you? And I think 60 or 70% of people say no. And the, the consequence of that is that the people like Meta and Twitter and um, Google... They use, they've been using that data in the past, what's called third-party data, to build profiles and therefore they can target ads. One of the consequences, I think we talked about on a previous show, is that now in the European Union, um, if you have Facebook and, or Instagram, you get asked a question that you have to answer on the Facebook or Instagram app, which says, are you going to pay to use the app? or accept that we're going to sell, still provide you with adverts that are based on your personal data. So you have to kind of opt in and out. And that's really a consequence of like the EU, but also the route that Apple kind of took us down when they, they introduced this app tracking. And I think on iOS 17, which came out two or three months ago, there's even more features which make it harder for advertisers. And the whole point is that Apple are trying to drive advertising the digital advertising revenue spend which is huge more into their pocket so they've got they've got their own ads i think they do about seven billion dollars a year from adverts on like the app store but we heard just a couple of months ago in the google antitrust case in the states that apple earns something like 18 billion dollars a year because they get a share of all the adverts that google search puts on apple devices so it's it's huge and the whole point is that apple kind of because they control the rails they own the iphone they've reduced the ability of everybody else to do advertising make money out of advertising so that it all concentrates more within apple and it's just the what they call own the rails you know you own the it's like the railway tracks is that something to admire well from a business point of view absolutely i think i looked at it two ways one is you you admire Apple for having the built this this fortress. We, you know, you often hear, hear it described as a moat, right? Because it's like a defense mechanism, which is that if you use an iPhone, you you tend to buy everything else that's on it, and because iPhone users demographically are a wealthier demographic you tend to get a higher spend the flip side of that is it shows the weakness so meta or facebook is entirely dependent on advertising that's where it makes 98 percent of its money more, more fool them i might say yeah and entirely and so as soon as google say, as soon as apple say well you can't use the data on about the iphone user to drive your advertising business all of a sudden the ability of micro, of meta to do targeted ads reduces by 50% and therefore they can't charge as much for those ads so then Meta lose money which is why Meta have had to go down other roads to find new sources of revenue. All I can think of uh, from a customer point of view is they didn't ask us in the first place and when we were provided with an option did you say 60% decided not to be tracked? Is that Was that your percentage? Yeah I think it's about 60 yeah I mean it's hard to tell because Apple don't. And I'm one of them. 
So, yeah. There's a debate, isn't there, about all this stuff we get for free, email, Google Docs, YouTube, Facebook. Well, I, I pay for my email, but 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 yes. Well, the majority of people don't. I, I've never paid for, for email. Um, and the major- all these things we get for free, right? Well, you know, if it's free, then you are the product is kind of the, the mantra. And I think this is just unraveling this whole business model that's driven the big internet social media companies over the last 20 years is starting to break down because you've got, A, you've got the business model of Apple, but also you've got regulations and the European Union are probably leading, well, they are leading the way globally in terms of saying the users have to opt in. You can't just take their data. And it has parallels to the story we had at the start of the show, which was about OpenAI nicking New York Times data and building a business where I think they're going to do about one and a half billion dollars of revenue this year from like nothing last year. Uh, And it's all based on somebody else's content. Well, I read um, that that Google is also shutting off its cross-site tracking Mm -hmm. on its Chrome browser, and that could be even more uh, significant. Well, did you see that story on Chrome, uh, what Google were doing with the incognito thing, which is... No, tell me about it. So so incognito is their version of a private browsing, is that right? Yeah, so so on every browser they have, they have like a... You can go to an option, which basically means they don't remember the cookies and the history and... So if you want to do, if you want to browse, but you don't want any footprint, and what they they've just, I think it was something like five billion dollars. They're having to pay back because what they found was that when people were in incognito mode, which means that you should think everything's forgotten, they were actually keeping the data and using it. What happened to that? Do no evil. Yeah, remember that? Thing. They used to be there. They when used to be there. Arrived on. Do you remember that? They dropped that, didn't they? They did. They they failed on that one. All right, let's move on uh, and to uh, Hyperloop. Now, Hyperloop One, um, we talked uh, in our last episode or the episode before, I forget which, about the Tesla in Las Vegas, you know, this tunnel, this two-mile tunnel, and that this is one of Elon Musk's visions is to have this tunnel where you can travel at 100 miles an hour in a Tesla car. Now, Hyperloop One, which actually originally was, I think, developed by or, or somehow Elon Musk was involved, but... Eventually, it came to be Virgin, I think, Hyperloop 1, with Richard Branson's money. But it shut down after failing to achieve commercial success. But it doesn't feel like it actually got going at all. So how... Yeah, I don't understand how they can say uh, failing to achieve commercial success when no one was allowed to ride it yet. So how does <laughs> well, that work? Well, it's true. They didn't, they didn't sell anything. So that is... <laughs> they did fail. They, they're true on that one. Yeah. So you're right. So what I so in 2013, Elon Musk issued a white paper or published. He wrote this paper called um, Hyper One Alpha or Hyperloop Alpha, I think it was called. And he he wrote a paper about a vision where you in a very science fiction where the idea is that individuals, you and I, would get into this pod, and it would be it would it would shoot at 200 miles an hour down these tunnels. Um, these low pressure tunnels and it would be a propulsion system to get us from a to b at ultra high speeds and um, that's what uh, hyperloop one was going to be one of the companies and you're right it's it was taken over or it was there was a big investment from branson and in fact i think richard branson was the chairman at one point but they sold and it's now majority shareholder is uh, dp world which are the the harbor uh, people 
but they also also the sponsors of the European Tour uh, for golf, which I know DP World more from them. It was a, it was a science fiction vision that just was impossible to execute. I liked it. I've got to say, would you have I mean, gone in it? It was using magnetic levitation. Yes, I would have. It, it was using magnetic levitation, which is exactly what we were talking about with the maglev uh, Japanese. Uh, Shinkansen, but it said that it faced significant engineering challenges getting Hyperloop going. I just can't imagine that. We can send a satellite, 19 million... We can send a video of a cat chasing yeah, a little orange dot. In, in 19... Yeah. <laughs> and we can't get this thing that basically Ian Fleming wrote about, didn't he? It was being in James Bond, though, those uh, transport... It must have been. Uh, ...things, pods... I think because Elon Musk, did you know Elon Musk is a big James Bond fan? So he, a lot of his ideas are coming from the Bond villain sort of hangouts. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm, I've never it. heard the James Bond thing. It wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. What's driving this revival in vinyl? Do you think? Yeah, well, we've seen this growth for, for 16 years now, and every time sort of we report that figures are going up, I think that people respond to that. Uh, we're also seeing a kind of a much broader audience, not just the baby boomers, but a much younger demographic of consumers buying it. So millennials, Gen Z, perhaps informed by their parents' record collections. He's not alone. Vinyl albums outsold CDs last year for the first time since 1987 to the tune of $1.2 billion. Right, uh, let's, let's talk vinyl. I know this doesn't sound like technology, does it? But... The surge in people buying vinyl records again, which has mm. gained more traction than I thought it would over the years. I thought it would be a phase that would be here and gone within a couple of years. But sales are up of vinyl. Uh, they reached their highest level since 1990, reaching 5.9 million units sold in 2023. And it marks the 16th consecutive year of growth for vinyl sales. How interesting. How does this affect streaming services? I don't think it affects them at all. I'm more interested in NFT music, you know, so digital platforms that are, are wrapping their music in essentially blockchain-based technologies rather than going back to uh, a time. And I grew up with vinyl records, you know, when I was a kid, I had my own record player and, you know, I used to like listening to vinyl records. And When you were a kid, weren't you on cartridges? No, no, I, no. It was that pre-vinyl. <laughs> Right? You're talking about those Super 8s or whatever they were. No, that, was, that is before me. Um, thank you. No, I grew up. No. And, and yeah, there was something very tactile. For me personally, I'm in the camp of I've given up books for Kindle and I've given up vinyl records for streaming. And I, I, you know, I'm unlikely to go back. But I, I can understand the appeal. And when people like Taylor Swift make a point out of you know, creating a, a vinyl record and they've got sleeve notes... And all of that thing is, of course, going to be uh, popular because she's, you know, the biggest star in the world at the moment. I don't know anybody with a record player. No, I don't either. No. So it is. It is. A I thought you were going to say you did. I, I you know, I, had my, I said to Sue, I said, he's introduced this subject because he's going to say, look at what I've got and, and start playing some music. No, no one. <laughs> the opposite. The opposite, actually, because I'm, I'm like you. I'm all in on, on streaming. Ah. But I, I'm also, my approach is that you don't have to have one over the other. It's not a competition between them all. It's a little bit like books. I got a marvelous paper, uh, sorry, hardback book for Christmas, even though I'm mostly digital. So, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's just 
words and and it's only a medium i'm much the same because my 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 daughter who came out is she reads a book a week and she did buy me you know proper books and so and actually it was quite nice to hold them right there is something you know that that tactile is there is something tactile about it but but they do say the things that i read about vinyl it I don't know. They're building a myth, and I don't complete. I'm not convinced by the myth. Um, artwork and, and collectability, I totally get, and that uniqueness. I've got a record player, you know, and that sort of thing. But better sound quality, uh, the, there's no proof of that. Actually, it's still better sound quality according to digital format. It still has a, a more broad spectrum. Um, in terms of megahertz and quality so if someone says oh it sounds better it's just subjective and we're not audiophiles we're not sound engineers we're just people who plug in our airpods and you know put music on you know this technology better than i do but i i'm assuming that you could take any digital track and then apply filters that make it sound like it's being played with a needle on a PVC platter. Quite possibly. You could certainly fool someone into thinking they were listening to a record on a platter, yeah. You know, like you can with, with a movie. You can, you can make them look like it was shot in 1920 and it's been shot on a 4K, you know, iPhone now. So I guess you can kind of do those things. No, see, for me, I'm... So we probably are much more aligned then in terms of the digitalness because the things that... When I when I look at vinyl sales, they say, "Oh, you know, you've got like the sleeve notes," and I'm thinking, "Yeah, but you know, I don't really want the space taken up with all of that. You know, the the rows of record uh, vinyl uh, records that you'd have when you can get millions of them on a, on any digital device. But when you go down the NFT, you can attach a whole so much more." information and giveaways and visual yeah you can make something really good can't you i mean once you buy a vinyl record you know you buy taylor swift or the rolling stones i think have got vinyl records out you know they don't know who you are and you have no direct contact whereas if you do it through a digital mechanism and you've got this ownership token called an nft then you actually have a, a record link a recorded link without that being a pun you know, on the blockchain that connects the artist with the the person who owns it, and that can and that stays current. That's real time. So I'm much more interested in that. Well, do, do you know what's also surprising for me is that with streaming, yeah, you can pay nine ninety nine and get a premium subscription to either Spotify, Apple Music, whatever your flavour, and you can listen to. 80 to 100 million pieces of music or albums, mm-hmm. whatever it is, how they, they quantify that. Whereas the average cost of a one vinyl album is 20 quid. You're joking. 20 pound, that's the average. That's what I found. That's what I read. So you can pop your Taylor Swift album on that you just paid 20 pound for. And you can only play that Taylor Swift album. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> you a- know what I mean? So I don't want to go back to that. You know, I haven't. I hadn't even looked at how much. It doesn't surprise me, um, but it does surprise me when you think, from a business point of view, people are buying vinyl from an emotional point of view. There's, they're not buying it for any other reason. It's just there's an emotional need to have a, a vinyl, which is fine. I get that. You know, everyone to their own doesn't do it for me. Well, it's interesting you say that as well because the most popular albums are by Taylor Swift, Rolling Stones, and Lana Del Rey. Oh well, there you go. I can't imagine 12-year-olds uh, uh, buying Rolling Stones albums and Lana Del Rey. And 
It may, <laughs> may be Taylor Swift, but even Taylor Swift has been around a long time now. Her audience is a little older. So the people actually with the money and perhaps that emotional connection that you just said, maybe they're propping up this final surge at the moment and good on them. I still don't think it's going to last, but it's lasted a hell of a lot longer than I thought it would. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just one of those, there'll always be a little a little pocket of people that like that, just as they are in all sorts of collectibles. You know, there's loads of little niche groups and um, they'll, get, they'll get a headline from time to time. Speaking of collectibles, uh, Rick, um, my award this week goes to the creators of Pokemon Concierge uh, for reminding us that the world isn't, Always on fire. The new show, Pokemon Concierge, is on Netflix. And whatever your age, switch it on and let it go to work on your senses. If you can just switch off from the news cycle at the moment and plug into something that isn't uh, a serial killer show or something that's going to get us down, Put Pokemon Concierge on. It's a show, is it, on Netflix? That's my uh, award of the week. Yes, it is, yeah. I haven't seen that. What about your hero of the week? So my hero of the week, so I'm going with uh, with Jeff Bezos. Oh, really? <laughs> this, is, this has got to be a good excuse for Jeff Bezos to be a hero. We have a lot in common. we both in fine physical shape and also bald on top. <laughs> He's got a little bit more money, but between us, between me and Jeff Bezos, we're worth, we're, we're worth um, billions, uh, billions of dollars between us. So, you know, we have a lot in common. Uh, no, I'm going for Jeff Bezos because um, last week they had the successful launch of uh, the, the shot, his uh, spaceship Blue Shepherd, and they'd had, some, they'd had some disasters earlier in the year. And um, Bezos has just told Lex Friedman that he's going to lead the Blue Origin space company directly. So he's, you know, for people that don't know, Jeff Bezos founded Amazon and ran Amazon for 20 odd years. And then he stepped down as CEO a couple of years ago, which makes him, which is why he's the second or third wealthiest man in the world after Musk and the guy who does uh, LMVH, LVMH. Um, And um, he's going to run, he's going to run the company. And it's important time because they've just won the contract with NASA to build the next uh, moon landing capsule which they're going to call Blue Moon and um, because NASA are now re-engaged in in putting people back on the moon and uh, Bezos's company is going to build the lander. They're they're going to build a space station on the moon and broadband will be supplied by a satellite 19 million (laughs) miles away from the... (laughs) Well I probably yeah Just before we go, while while we've been talking about streaming, I just want to kind of wrap up because it's been a while since we talked about what we're watching and things like that. And I just thought, uh, you know, for those people interested, I think some of my favorite things that I've enjoyed on the streaming services in 2023 are TV show Slow Horses on Apple TV and Hijack, really enjoyed Hijack. And my favorite films of the year are probably The Killer, Netflix, Mm -hmm. and Oppenheimer, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Fabulous. So they're my picks. Have you got any picks? Any recommendations? Funny enough, I just fi- I finally watched Oppenheimer yesterday, having wanted to watch it all year. Tell me what you thought. I absolutely loved it. Because it's three hours, and so many people had said to me, great film but slow, great film but complicated, great film but you have to really be- concentrate, and it's hard. And-, and I kind of had my head in a space of, I need to be really, really in the right place. 
to watch this film. And also it's been competing because, we, let's face it, we've just had The Voice UK on for the last 10 weeks, which has dominated our Saturday nights. And uh, I thought, no, we're going to watch Oppenheimer because it was New Year's Day yesterday and we started at five. I did not think it was slow. I did not think it was complicated. And uh, I thought it was absolutely unbelievably brilliant. But you know, this is a rare occasion because you and I don't often agree on one of the arts, uh, you know, that we both appreciate a, a particular film or a TV series. But this, I think, you and I, I, I gave it 9 out of 10. Good, solid 9 out of 10. I'll give it 10. Good for you. I've, go, I've gone with the full... It, it was just perfect. I mean, it was such a great beginning, such a great middle, such a great end. Told the story well. Can I share a description I thought was very apt? It was one of the reviewers actually said, someone has managed to make a biopic feel like a thriller. And I think that's a perfect description. Yeah. Um, and, and the other one, I just want, let me just mention Slow Horses because... Oh, do you like Slow Horses? Yeah, I did. And in fact, when Series 3 came out recently, we went back and watched Series 1 and 2 again. So we watched all three in a row. And the only... Th- and although I love Gary Oldman and his character and the team, I was frustrated that Series 3, without being a spoiler alert, wasn't it just a bit nonsense? The fact that you had this... This battle with 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 these with these um, no well it's all nonsense it was nonsense it got it was don't nonsense. give stuff away don't give stuff away for people who haven't watched it but it's you know what it's it's all nonsense and we agree on John and I you know we it's unbelievable stuff but it's written so well and it's compelling no see I, and yeah. if if you're on a levels of nonsense. I'd rather watch the nonsense of Slow Horses than the nonsense of, of Barbie. Well, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Barbie. Anyway, thanks for <laughs> listening to the show. Look for us on Patreon for the video version of the show and for exclusive content you won't get anywhere else. Rick and I will be back soon with another not-so-serious look at big tech, little tech, and everything in between. This has been a Sean Weston media production. I was Sean Weston. And I was Rick Huckstep, still talking. I won't be shut up.